Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the All Souls Forum. This week's presentation on hospice and palliative care was made by Dr. Richard Sosinski at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Lawrence on June 11, 2023. and he is going to tell us about the development of hospice and palliative care and the difference between the two in all the years I've been involved. So please welcome Dr. Richard Sitsky. Helen, and uh, thank you all for inviting me. Uh, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I've spent most of my life involved with it. Um <clears throat> I'm just going to put up a few dates here um, just to orient you uh, about uh, how, how hospice came to be and how it came to be in Douglas County. The modern hospice movement was founded by uh, Cecily Saunders in 1960. Yeah. A little word about Dr. Saunders, um, she's a very interesting person. She um, studied at Oxford, um, and then in World War II, decided to become a nurse. She eventually um, also got a degree in social work and served as a medical social worker, and then eventually uh, became an MD. Uh, very early on in her career, or, or all through her career, she was um, mostly impressed with how poorly uh, the dying people were being cared for, how much suffering there was, and how little uh, organized medicine had to offer them. Um, so this inspired her with a, along with a 500 pound, uh, gift given to her by a patient, uh, which was worth somewhat more back then. And she founded, um, St. Christopher's Hospice in, uh, Sydenham, um, London, England. Um, the American first hospice in America was uh, the Connecticut Hospice in Branford, Connecticut. And in 1981, uh, Douglas County visiting nurses began their hospice program in Douglas County, uh, which still exists, still serves the county and surrounding areas. And I am the medical director still. <laughs> so when I began with hospice, um, I actually was uh, agreed to be on the board. And at that time, uh, the hospice board was made up of, like any other board, community members and one physician who was deemed the medical director of the hospice. Although, and I think there's some papers that this person had to sign, but didn't really function as a, as a physician, a hospice physician. Uh, 
So, um, and at that time it was, um, it was located, physically located in the VNA building, which is in the basement of the old hospital building, uh, LMH. And uh, it was uh, basically run by a social worker. It was a grassroots uh, organization. It was started by Lawrence people who wanted something like this hospice they've heard of. And um, it was very holistic. Um, and this sort of grassroots uh, origin of the hospice was something that took place all across the U.S. And in, in fact, when hospices started growing and becoming more accepted into the medical establishment, um, then uh, actually a lot of us really fought hard to keep that grassroots uh, flavor there. Um, so I got tired sitting at board meetings and having very little to offer. And, and also this coincided with the death of my then brother-in-law who died a horrible rapid death from cancer his pain was not controlled his uh, families were warring it was and i said you know it's got to be better than this so maybe i could do something to to help things being better than this so i um studied up mostly on my own went to a few meetings uh learning about pain and symptom management now there was not a class in medical school or residency that taught about pain control. Zilch. Um, you learned by watching the interns and residents when you were a student um, do it. And, and it was done poorly. It was inadequate. Uh, had no understanding of, of opioid management. And um, so, you know, I got to, uh, I, I really studied that intently, and, and a lot of the uh, literature um, on pain control was coming out of, out of uh, London. And, and Dr. Sanders, from the very beginning, wanted this to be holistic, uh, but she also wanted it to be scientific, and she really um, uh, welcomed research into pain and symptom control and, in, and all other sorts of aspects of hospice. So uh, I had served, and I served as a volunteer medical director for many years. Um, and so after a few years, it was about 1990, I, I don't know if I mentioned I started working with hospice and I guess Lynn did in somewhere, I don't know the exact day, 86, 87. And uh, they said, well, you know, we're not paying you anything. Can we do anything for you? And I said, well, yeah, yeah. I said, I've been looking at this international hospice meeting that's taking place in London. Uh, this was in 1990, and, you know, if you want to give me a little money toward that, don't expect you to pay the whole thing, then, uh, you know, I, I think I'll go. I was going through a little turmoil in my life at that time. It seemed like a good thing for me to do. Um, so I went, 
And it was an international meeting. There were about 500 people there. Now, if you go to the U.S. Uh, meeting, just as the United States, all the people from all over the world come, there's about 4,505,000 attending in person, a lot of people attending uh, virtually. So it was still rather small. Um, but um, I really had a great experience, and it really uh, had, an, had a great effect upon me. Um, Cecily Saunders addressed the group um, in uh, the, uh, the auditorium. And, uh, of course, she had a standing ovation, which she waved off. And I remember two things that she said that uh, affected me and, and sort of guided my way. Uh, and I'm not quoting her word for word, but the first thing out of her mouth after we applauded and sat down was she said, the first thing I want you to do is to remove your halos. Uh, and, and that is because, uh, you know, even then, I mean, people say, oh, you work for hospice, you work with hospice, uh, you know, that's great, you know, how heroic, and how, how can you do this work, it's so hard and everything. And so it was easy to get a lot of positive strokes with hospice. Um, so she thought, well, you know, she needed to bring us down to earth to, to, to do the work. And then she's, then she was talking about the book of Job, and she said, I wanted to remind you all that it was only after Job's friends ceased giving their inadequate advice did Job get on with it. <laughs> Which I think is a great line, but and, and you know it really applies to 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 people at the end of life because there's not a formula for death at that time. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross had written her landmark work on the stages of of dying, and and though she never uh, intended it to be a a guidebook to death that you had to go through this stage and this stage and this stage and this stage. People in the hospice movement sometimes felt they had to guide people through these stages. And but but a person's death, like their life, is their own and everybody does it differently. And you have to let them get on with it. Um, there is an old um, episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes through the Kubler-Ross stages after he eats bad sushi thinking he's going to die. He, he goes through the stages in about a minute. <laughs> and he starts out, oh, I'm so angry that I have to ends up. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> so, uh, I, I have that actually, but it's on VHS. <laughs> So anyway, when I, the other thing that when I went to this meeting is that they had an opportunity. Uh, they took just 40 people who first come, first serve, who signed up to actually get bus to Sydenham to go to uh, St. Christopher's Hospice. 
So I went. And that was before we had cameras in our pockets, so I don't have any photographic uh, evidence that I did this. But So she also addressed our group there, and I got to go on rounds um, at St. Christopher with the team. And it was an old building. Uh, it, it looked like an old hospital building, mostly wooden. It did have a large solarium, which was kind of, uh, you know, the old hospitals always thought that people sitting out in the sun was a good thing, probably was. Uh, I remember that. And then we, 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 you know, we discussed some cases. And uh, But anyway, that was a tremendous experience. Uh, so as I started to care for hospice patients, um, then, you know, the, the doses of opioids that are used to treat cancer pain sound or, and are very high. Um, but remember, pain was inadequately controlled. I mean, if, if I took one of you who, um, uh, who aren't taking any kind of opioid and I gave you 30 milligrams of morphine, you'd be knocked out. Uh, I've had people going to work on uh, a thousand milligrams of morphine. Um, you um, you get habituated, not habituated. Um, you get tolerant of the effects, side effects of morphine, um, but you often require those kinds of doses to treat pain. So I remember the first. Um, Patients that I ordered rather high doses of morphine in the hospital, I got reported by one of the nurses, and uh, I mean they investigated, and I didn't get into any trouble. But I, I realized at that time that we uh, needed a lot of education at the hospital, and, and uh, so I started doing that. And some nurses got interested, and they did a lot of nursing in services. So that problem got um, addressed relatively quickly. There were some communities where hospice was not received well by the physician medical community. Lawrence and Douglas County was not one of those. I never really had any, I, I had only support uh, from, from the physician community. I did give a talk one time. I was asked by a social worker to give a talk at Atchison, and I found out what the opposition was like. <laughs> and uh, uh, but that was my only experience like that. In two thousand three, um, twenty eight percent of people died at home. Twenty seventeen was the. Um, year that um, uh, more people uh, in the U.S. died at home than in the hospital. Although a lot of people, you know, die in, in uh, long-term care and institutions. At this meeting in London, there was a lot of, Britain already had board certification, fellowship training for hospice physicians. Uh, the U.S. did not, and, and part of it was this sort of wanting to maintain the grassroots aspect of it. 
and, and there was some discussion, but eventually the U.S. did move toward um, uh, board certification and fellowship training. And actually, um, hospice and palliative medicine is the sixth largest um, um, internal medicine subspecialty uh, right now. So, you know, you got cardiology, pulmonary, oncology, but hospice and palliative care is up there. Um, so, uh, and, and then most people want to know what's the difference between hospice care and palliative care. And, and you know, I, spent, I always tell people I spent 36 years of my life trying to explain what internal medicine was and have never been able to do it. And now I have to explain what palliative care is vis-a-vis uh, -vis hospice and have trouble. But also at this hospice meeting, they put up a, a diagram and they didn't have a name for this kind of care. We all realized and recognized that hospice care was important um, an important service to have at the end of life. And, but there are a lot of people who don't qualify for hospice, and we'll talk about that later, uh, for whom that sort of care would be very important to provide. So, um, uh, in, in myself, I felt like, why am I a different doctor for my hospice patients than I am for my regular patients? And uh, so that was something that I struggled with and also uh, influenced the way I practice internal medicine. So they drew this as a diagram for, this is time. Uh, so a patient is diagnosed, say, with terminal cancer or given terminal cancer diagnosis, but there's still uh, chemotherapy and various treatments, scans, visits to the oncologist, all this sort of thing. And so um, eventually, you know, um, people um, get worse and worse. And then they start not taking some of their medications. They're advised to not taking some of their medication. There are fewer scans. A lot of times what happened was you got all this aggressive care and then boom, you're on hospice. So like one day the patient comes to the oncologist's office and they say, we have nothing more to offer you. And uh, sorry, you're on hospice. So hospice was a death sentence. That was hard for us in hospice to manage because, uh, you know, we were the doctors of death. I mean, that isn't what we, we, we wanted to emphasize the life part. Anyway, they said, um, at this conference, wouldn't it be great as the, as aggressive care was reduced in these patients? that, so this would be aggressive care in here, that hospice-style care would expand, and then at some point they would be on hospice. So, so the, and they didn't have a name for this. They called it 
expanded hospice. Um, but what it ended up being was palliative care. So <clears throat> now that I've thoroughly confused you, let me just try to go further with, uh, with um, palliative care and hospice. So for someone to be, to be a hospice patient, um, you have, well, let me back off just a second. Sorry about this. In 1986, the Medicare hospice benefit was established by Congress. This gave a generous amount of money to hospice patients, but you have to choose the hospice benefit. You can come off the hospice benefit at your choice at any time, and it won't hurt your ability to get back on, but you choose the hospice benefit. So it's understood that you're not going to go to the hospital for your hospice diagnosis, and you're not going to get a lot of scans, and you're not going to go to the doctor a lot and get a lot of tests if you're a hospice patient. Congress recognizing that they would save a lot of money on chemotherapy and um, and drugs uh, and um, and scans, MRI scans, uh, established a per diem for these patients, and it ends up being about three thousand dollars a month, which is pretty generous even today. Uh, <clears throat> in order then. To be on hospice, you have to have a six-month prognosis. So I, as the medical director, have to sign off and anybody that comes on to Douglas County Hospice saying that they have a greater than 50% chance of dying over the next six months. So uh, now, when I first started in hospice, almost all of them were... Uh, the people involved were terminal cancer patients. But as time went on, we started taking congestive heart failure, um, COPD, emphysema. Uh, and, and now what ends up being maybe our most common is these neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's, Parkinson's-like syndrome, Lewy body dementia, Alzheimer's, um, and, uh, and, and prognosis is much harder to predict on those. And so um, Medicare has established some criteria. Uh, and if you fit these criteria and you continue to deteriorate, then you can stay on hospice. Some people get off hospice. But more than half of our patients um, live greater than six months. I guess statistically that makes sense, 50% chance, but but uh, a whole lot of people still are referred in their last week or two of life. And that's when they start hospice. And that's another impetus for palliative care. So palliative care offers the same kind of services as hospice for people who we think are going to live more than six months. So they don't qualify for hospice, but they need those kinds of care. They need pain and symptom management. 
They need coordination of medical care. They need home services. They need to talk about advanced directives. So um, we call those palliative care patients. There is not a palliative care benefit per se under Medicare. It's paid like anything else. So if you if if I see someone in consultation when I was working palliative care, it would be like seeing a cardiologist or a pulmonologist. Uh, I would bill for services for palliative care and Medicare would pay for it out of Medicare like they do everything else. So that, uh, so then what does palliative care do? What do we do in palliative care? Well, again, number one is pain and symptom management. Uh, we take care of the entire family. Uh, that is, we don't take medical care for everybody in the family. But, you know, death very much involves a family, and there's family dynamics. There's um, families that are already grieving, right, that need help. There's dysfunctional families. Um, so we do that sort of thing. We, we, um, <laughs> Prognosis is a difficult thing, and there's not a lot of science. We, we, I can tell pretty well when somebody's in the last two weeks of life of a cancer, terminal cancer diagnosis. Beyond that, we're not that good. Uh, there's not a lot of scientific backing. But we do our best because we think it's important to educate people how long they have to live, and we tell the truth. A lot of specialists don't. Um, there's a lot of friction. Be there has been a lot of friction between hospice and palliative care in the field of oncology. Not so much in our community. Um, but you can see where that would be a conflict, where the oncologist always has another trip, and yet the chances of that helping are less and less. So we try to tell the truth as best we can. We try to coordinate the services. If I think that a congestive heart failure patient is getting too much medication and they're having a lot of side effects, then I, it's my job to talk to the cardiologist and say, hey, can we drop this dose? So they really need this. I think it's hurting them more than helping them. One of the first things we do is... Um, jump on advanced directives, um, that is, living wills and so on. Uh, most people don't have these, or they have this boilerplate thing that really doesn't say much. Um, so it's very important to have a plan for the patient to say, or the patient's proxy to say what, they're, what they want and what they don't want. So if, if I have one message to you about advanced directives, it's to pick your surrogate, your proxy, your durable power of attorney, and talk with them in detail about what you want or don't want. That's the most important part of advanced directives. And we engage in total care. So how does this um, work out in, in actuality? Well, a lot of things have happened in the palliative care field. 
And a lot of big medical centers say that do heart transplants. It's not the surgeon or the surgical team who come in and discuss the risks and benefits of the transplant. Often it's palliative care who is asked to do this. We're the ones that sit down with the family for two hours and listen to all their concerns because the hospitalists just don't really have the time to do that. Um, a good example is with uh, the uh, pandemic. Uh, when uh, the weekend that Lawrence had their first confirmed COVID case, uh, things moved very rapidly at the hospital. And uh, I remember coming in that Monday morning, I was working in palliative care, I was the medical director at that time, and we had three nurse practitioners. And I said, you know, we gotta, we gotta take the ball here. This is in our wheelhouse. This is what we do. So what we had, so, uh, what we did was, um, you know, uh, along with managing these complicated COVID patients, remember, uh, for the longest time, people couldn't, couldn't visit their families, uh, who were dying, their family member who was dying. And so we were the ones that were the go-betweens. We were the ones that took our phones in, did the, did the um, Zoom or FaceTime meetings between family and patients. Um, that Monday after the first weekend, uh, what everybody thought was that the, the big limitation on care uh, would be ventilators, that we wouldn't have enough ventilators to go around. And um, Lawrence Memorial had nine ventilators. We could, uh, we could, um, gear up, uh, another seven, what they call anesthesia machines. Uh, they're kind of ventilators that they use during surgery. So we figured we could do that. And we really thought that we would run out and that we would have to decide who, uh, got a ventilator and who didn't. So we met, uh, I was chair of ethics committee and we met weekly for, um, about a month or six weeks to try to figure this out. There were some examples nationally about how to do this, but we had a whole protocol about who got a ventilator and who didn't. Um, and palliative care, if, if you go to anywhere, if you go to, University of Kansas Medical Center, if you go anywhere, St. Luke's, and you go to their ethics committee, it's all, not all, there's a lot of hospice and palliative care people on those committees because medical ethics, including uh, autonomy, the, the uh, rights of people to determine their own medical care um, is, uh, you know, is very important in hospice and palliative care. So that's sort of how palliative care um, uh, interacted during the uh, during COVID. Uh, we didn't run out of ventilators. Okay, you never ran out of ventilators. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the limitation of rooms and people. 
and in sometimes palliative care drugs. So another question. So so right now in pal so in, in in our hospice we have six RNs, medical director, a chaplain, two social workers, a pharmacist, and other nurses and nurses aides, and a volunteer um, coordinator. In palliative care, and that's is mainly an inpatient thing. We get about Oh, we've, we've had months where we've had 120 referrals in, in, in one month, palliative care. Uh, we have, uh, that's done by four nurse practitioners that are supervised by a physician. So um, I've been asked almost yearly um, by a colleague of mine who taught uh, medical ethics um, at KU to address this group of honor students, uh, who most of them are pre-med, about uh, hospice and palliative care and, and about medical ethics in general. And uh, almost invariably, the last time it was this guy who wanted to be a surgeon, he said, you know, I want to go into this to save lives. I want to make people better. How, how could you do this? I'm not saying that this work isn't necessary, but how can you do this kind of work? And uh, and everybody thinks it's real depressing. I guarantee you, if you come to our weekly hospice meeting, it's a happy group. <laughs> I mean, people are, people have job satisfaction. And that's because We've tried to take off our halos, but we still get a lot of positive strokes for doing this. But also, you get experiences that uh, that define you as a medical practitioner. And eventually, my practice of internal medicine. I mean, internal medicine. Let's face it. What? I mean, I could cure some pneumonias. I can cure infections you know, with antibiotics, but I can't cure hypertension. I can't cure diabetes, can't cure if somebody's had a stroke. All I could do is care for them and try to make it better and do the best I can. So in a sense, uh, internal medicine is palliative care. Uh, so, so uh, and people really appreciate this. I mean, just this last week, I went to a birthday party for a friend of mine, and this woman came up to me. This happens all the time. Oh, thank you so much for um, what you did for my mother. And, you know, I don't, <laughs> you know, when, when you're a, a physician and somebody's dying and there's this family, that's a huge event in their life. And your image and your persona is burnt into their mind. But I'm sorry, I don't remember every one of these over 36 years. Although as she talked about it, I, I did remember. And, and it was a great example. It was a lady who had lung cancer. She was 80. She was very active. She did not want radiation or chemotherapy, much to her daughter's disappointment. She wanted to go to this annual flower thing in St. 
Lewis that she and her daughter always go to. Maybe some of you know what it is. I don't know. And this was like December. And she said, well, it's in April. And I said, no, I think there's a pretty good chance you're going to be doing this. And you're going to feel okay while doing it. I said, you might feel a little better if you took radiation. But if you don't want it, don't do it. So she made it. And then she made it the next year. <laughs> so I wonder what happened if we gave her all of these chemotherapy agents. There was a, our big study in palliative care was when it was reported in the New England Journal. And they took two groups. These were all people that had terminal cancer diagnoses, all in oncology. Actually, they had lung cancer, all in oncology and all on treatment of some sort, chemotherapy, radiation, usually a combination of both. But they were incurable. One group just got the oncology. The other group got palliative care along with their treatment, along with their treatment. Um, but the palliative care uh, uh, consisted of, you know, a visit with the physician, management by nurse practitioners and nurses, social work, chaplain, the, the stuff that we do in hospice. And the group that got palliative care had advanced directives at a much higher rate. They decided to stop scans and stop their uh, chemotherapy um, earlier. And they lived on the average three months longer. So <laughs> this justifies, I think, what we do. Now, three months doesn't sound like a whole lot, and I would have been satisfied with it being the same. But it was statistically significant, and the three months is something. And then, you know, it wasn't measured what their quality of life was. I think it was probably better. So that's an example of why we do this. Um, I'll just give you one story. I have many, but I had a long-term patient in my eternal medicine practice, um, and he... Um, had uh, lung cancer. And they started him on this drug called Keytruda. And Keytruda is one of these new designer drugs that attack the, the cancer genetically. It's kind of a tailored drug. They don't have a lot of the side effects uh, of um, of uh, chemotherapy drugs, which are basically, you know, cellular poisons, uh, they, they target the DNA, the genetic makeup of the, of the tumor, and, and have a lot of data supporting them. They're all monoclonal antibodies. They all end in MAB, the long name ends in MAB. And he developed this rare complication of it, um, which was like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Basically, he very quickly couldn't move his arms and legs and uh, couldn't breathe without a ventilator. And, you know, he, this guy was pretty active and he, he was about 70. So he um, 
we had him in the ICU in the hospital, then we downgraded care. Then we sent him to one of these ventilation hospitals that Medicare certifies. It's one in Kansas City. And he spent um, six, eight weeks there, and they couldn't get him off the ventilator. So then he went to um, the one nursing home in the area, Kansas City area, that will take ventilator patients because he still didn't want to give up. So he went there for another four to six weeks. And then finally, he, he, it came to him that he didn't want to do this anymore. Um, so um, he, you know, his wife calls me and says, you know, he wants to be taken off the ventilator. And, and we do this all the time. We know how to do it. Uh, we know we premeditate people with um, opioids to um, uh, dull the sensation of breathlessness and then also some anti-anxiety medications. And, um, you know, we do this fairly frequently. Well, he didn't want to die in this nursing home where he didn't know anybody. and He wanted to die um around people that he knew, he, but he, I mean, he couldn't go home and do this in his situation. So we went to um, the, he wanted to die at LMH. He, he loved the ICU nurses and they loved him. So I went up there and said, look, I know this is kind of not what we do, but I'd like to admit this guy under the hospice inpatient symptom management uh, in which case hospice and the, and the hospital both lose money because it's not reimbursed very well. But I'd like to bring him in, have all of these people around him, family and friends, uh, and do um, what we call palliative extubation, uh, get him off the ventilator so he could die comfortably. And they agreed to it. There was some, there was one particular hospitalist that thought it was not a good use of medical resources. I mean, this was going to be an hours long thing, but I, it's expensive. So we brought him in. <clears throat> he had family. He didn't have a large family. He had a lot of friends, though, and they were all in the room. Uh, when I walked in, he just smiled. So glad to see me. And I said, are, are you sure that this is what you want to do? Yes, he was sure. So we did it. He died the way he wanted to. He died comfortably. And um, and people, friends and family, really appreciated it. And, you know, I have a lot of those kinds of stories. And, and you know, I was sad he died. I really liked the guy. But... You know, I really feel good about that. I felt good when I left that situation. So that's kind of uh, that's kind of the little secret that people that work in hospice, most of us have, is that we're we're pretty happy with what we do, even though we're dealing with people who are dying. Uh, that's about what I have. I'm happy to answer any questions. That you might have. That was beautiful. No, thank you. You're you're not an angel. You're an excellent physician, 
Thank you. And and you you model what every doctor who's being educated today should be exposed to, which is the other half of medicine, which is care. Yeah. And and you can double the area under that diagram there on the x-axis, and the upper half of it should be care, and it is care. And the hospitalist who thought it wasn't a good use of medical resources and the student who couldn't understand why you would do the things that you do, they're not well-educated <laughs> to that other half of medicine. Yeah, I, and let me just say that I that the, the physician, the hospitalist who thought that now is uh, has come around. He's actually working with another hospice, uh, uh, doing some work with them. Uh, so because uh, <laughs> maybe so we, you know, we uh, we put caring over uh, over curing. And that's not to say that we don't cure something if we have a chance to cure it. But um, we really we really put caring first. Yeah, th thank you, Dr. Szynski. Um, you uh, talked uh, um, about uh, advanced directives and uh, the need for some amount of detail with advanced directives. And my question is, how can you, um, as, as a, a, a patient facing that, uh, give an advanced, uh, um, detail when you really don't know what the conditions are at the end of your, at the end of your life? Uh, that's a great question. That's, that's the question about advanced directives. You cannot anticipate everything that might happen to you. Like this fellow that I talked about, um, that we took off the ventilator, you know, so like 10 years before that, he's going to say, well, I'm going to have this cancer and I'm going to have a complication with chemo. I'm going to be on a ventilator. And I, after I have a trial over a lot of months, then I'd like to come off the ventilator in comfort. There's no way he could have anticipated that. And he could speak for himself and he could write and stuff, but some people can. So um, <clears throat> the most important part of, of, of a, an advanced directive is picking your, uh, your representative correctly and communicating with that person. So, for instance, uh, for... Um, uh, most of my life since I've had kids, I had my brothers, I have two brothers, uh, as my durable power of attorney for healthcare because I didn't think my oldest son could, didn't want to put the pressure on him to make these decisions. But now I think he could. So I changed it to him, although he would talk with the rest of my family. And they know that, and, and because I've talked about this a lot, uh, that I don't want to feed him to if, if, you know, if that isn't just a temporary thing that I mean, and, and, you know, I, I want to, I don't have a DNR yet. I, uh, don't, um, and I, it, you know, under certain situations, I would want to be put on a ventilator, but 
I've talked enough about this that they know what the limits are. So if I'm unable to speak for myself, I think they would speak for me. So, uh, you know, that's the best advice I could give is just to really communicate with the person. And, and most time, if, if you still have cognitive abilities, you can kind of see things coming and make decisions for yourself. And even people with with Alzheimer's disease have some agency in determining their health care. They, they may not remember what they had for breakfast, but they know they, want, they don't want a feeding tube because they never wanted a feeding tube. So, you know, that's the way that I would answer that question. You uh, spoke uh, before about the use of opioids in um, palliative care and hospice care. But uh, uh, I think it's common that there, you know, you don't have the palliative care. It's just a, a temporary thing and then you get off it. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the uh, plan for, for that when, when you uh, don't have somebody uh, in palliative care, but in, in regular care. Yeah. Uh, in terms of using opioids? Yeah. Well, in a course, this opioid crisis, I could give a whole other talk on that. And, you know, you have to realize that a lot of the people that I deal, most of the people that I deal with in hospice, I don't really worry about addiction um, or um overdosing or anything i mean i know how to do it so the overdosing would be rare uh, we do have certain families that still family members that steal the opioids and use them for themselves we've had that sort of situation but uh, the opioid crisis was applying a lot of these principles mainly uh, at the behest of pharmaceutical companies to uh, treat a lot of uh, chronic pain with high-dose opioids that had no business being treated that way. And um, so um, actually in a lot of big centers, um, palliative care has taken over um, the drug addiction management. Uh, we're not, nobody's too interested in doing, that's a hard one to deal with. Nobody's too interested in doing it in Douglas County right now, but, um, you know, it, it certainly is a problem. Hi. Um, I have a related question. It's about the measurement of pain and how um, the amount of pain relievers that someone should be given at the end of life is determined. You, you talked a little bit about that. Um, do you talk with other physicians a lot? Do you coordinate with them when it comes to end-of-life pain treatment? Yeah. Um, of course, we're always available for consultation. Um, if somebody gets on hospice, chooses the hospice benefit, they uh, can either retain their primary care physician or they can, or I can act as their primary care physician. It's their choice. Uh, 
or, or I shouldn't say act as their primary care physician. I, I would manage their pain and symptoms that if they had other issues and they would still have their regular doctor. Certainly don't want you to interfere with that. Um, so, um, you know, basically you talk with people about their pain. There's pain scales. You ask them to rate their pain one to 10. I've, I do that. I've never been a real fan. It's, it's kind of quantitating something that's not quantifiable, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so some people, you know, if they step their toe, they'd say it was a 10. Other people have cancer all over their bodies and they, they're sweating and they're grimacing and their pain is a three, you know. So you have to, you have to read those things. And, and, you know, this, uh, there's fewer and fewer of, of them, but, uh, that sort of World War II generation is very stoic and they've kind of always underdid it. Uh, so we do it. We 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 pay it a lot of attention to function. So uh, uh, our you know we'll often say, well, what would you like to be able to do? Well, I'd like to be able to dress myself. I'd like to be able to get up and go to the bathroom without being in pain. And so, well, that's our endpoint. Then you know we, we can't control all pain without permanently sedating someone. Um, so, you know, you start with a certain dose and you go further. You know, there's all this stuff about fentanyl and we've been using fentanyl for years with patches and we know not to give a fentanyl patch on somebody who's never body, never saw an opioid. But once they are not what we call it opioid naive, we can use it. And then we, and you can basically go up by 50% as you need to without having side effects. We try to keep people, um, we try to maintain a level of alertness along with their pain control. Some people, in order to control their really, really bad pain, have to um, have to be sedated from the medication in order to control the pain. That's usually at the very end, but that does happen. Uh, by the way, there is something called, and you know, euthanasia, I invariably get those kinds of questions, and I don't want to go um, into a lot of detail in that, particularly since it's not legal in Kansas anyway. But, you know, people always, people will come to me and say, uh, I want you to give me the Kevorkian treatment, you know, and I say, well, first, I can't do that. Now, you know, if they take an overdose of the meds I prescribed, I guess that's their business. I don't think it happens very often. Uh, but, you know, what if their suffering is so bad and the medication that we're giving is just not helping it? And it's usually a patient who's extremely agitated they're confused, they're in pain, they're getting tons of opioids. You cannot believe how much you could give somebody and they're still writhing around. I mean, so there is something called palliative sedation. We have a whole protocol for doing that. So this is an end of life thing because we're going to sedate people and they're not going to eat or drink. Um, ethically, what we 
believe and we tell people is that they are not dying. We're not giving these drugs to kill them, to end their life. We are giving these drugs to treat their symptoms. They are dying of their disease. Okay. So we can uh, basically sedate them um, and um, they don't eat or drink. So eventually you can only go a week or two of that. Usually these people are so sick, they die in 48 hours. But um, so you don't have, you know, the choices aren't just um, physician assisted death or suffering. There's this palliative sedation in, in the middle that we can do. So, okay, we have to quit. I would thank you very, very much, Dr. Sosinski. Let's give him a big round of applause. for listening. Now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon following immediately and for the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. followed by the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.